Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with legendary jazz pianist, composer, arranger, writer, and educator, the great Hal Galper. He found jazz at the Berklee College of Music in 1955 and went on to work with the best in the business, with cats like Chet Baker and Stan Getz, along with being a member of Phil Woods' quintet for 10 years. He is on the faculty of Purchase College and the New School for Jazz and Contemporary Music, and he has taught countless musicians over the years. We talked to him during early May 2020, during the coronavirus lockdown, and he poured over a very good career in jazz. Enjoy. You hanging in there okay? Uh, yeah, 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 you know, uh, I got busted for speeding a couple of years ago, and I spent six months without a license. I'm kind of used to it. <laughs> I, I had some experience with, you know, being uh, kept under house arrest. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep, you're a veteran then. How are you uh, doing down there? How you, how you doing where you are, Russ? Uh, it's, you know, it's the same thing. We're all in a ambiguous holding pattern, and... We're all no. waiting for life to get back to some semblance of normality. I mean, you know, Hal, this is the thing. We've been told in the last two months to completely undo everything we've known for decades and decades of our lives. We all have been told since we're kids, go out, see the world, socialize, shake hands, look in the eyes, and now it's becoming the new norm to not do any of that. So from a psychological standpoint, this is just, a level of surreal that words can't even touch. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. And I can feel a wave of it, too. I, and the world's never going to be the same because of this, for, for good yeah. and bad, you know, for good and bad, you know. Right, right. I hear you. But, you know, yeah. everybody I talk to, all the cats that I talk to, they're all practicing now. <laughs> right, so, yeah, yeah. Everybody's gone into the shed, and they're going to be sounding better. Well, that's the thing. That, that, I think that's the thing out of all of this is that there's going to be levels of this that there's always a silver lining and all kinds of things. And for the jazz world, man, you know, jazz musicians don't get into it for the money. And ultimately, at the end of the day, jazz musicians are masters of improv. So this new world is probably best suited for jazz artists than anybody else. Right. You Good know? point. Good point. So, but at the end of the day... What are you doing artistically to keep yourself, you know, positive and hopeful? Me, I'm doing a lot of archiving of bootleg tapes and, and VHRs and stuff that I have. Uh, I've been doing work and do arms, Jesus. I just finished 20 VCRs, and I've got a, a, about 50 cassettes that I've got to digitalize. So uh, that's keeping me busy, and... Uh, I had a trio, I had, if you can't believe it, I retired from the new school uh, last December, and I live about uh, two hours north of the city in a little country town. It's not even a town. It's a hamlet. But three miles from me, there's a slightly bigger town. Guy opened up a jazz club. Actually, he opened up a club for music, so I had a, I couldn't believe it, a steady Sunday night trio gig with great cats. And, uh, I mean, I, I can roll out of bed and start playing. It was three three minutes away from me. I wow. can't believe. It. Yeah, yeah, I got really lucky. Well, that's the thing that I keep hearing too about this new world. You know, I mean, even in Kansas City, I don't know how much people around the country realize, but Kansas City was definitely going through a renaissance. Every night, every place, there was all kinds of venues opening up. You know, Bobby Watson had built the program here really, really steadily. 
and got to a point where cats weren't leaving. They were staying, and, and it was just, uh, man, it was it was crazy. I mean, that's the thing. We're all like, wow, I remember before March 12th or the 13th, you know, and it's like, yeah, it's just it's, it's a different place now. And, and, you know, when everybody resurfaces, it's, and, and if they resurface, it's going to be interesting to see how everything kind of pans out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk to me a little bit about your beginnings, where you were born and raised, and kind of how you got into jazz. Oh, gee, all that stuff's in my bio. <laughs> <laughs> I got, I can talk about it. I got to talk about it. All right. Um, I was born in Salem. I it was, I was, was eighty-two this past April eighteenth. I, I studied classical piano. My mother made me take classical piano when I was really, really young. And I hated every moment of it. And then it stopped, and I played guitar for a little while. And uh, uh, last year of high school, uh, next to last year of high school, they sent me to a, a kind of a prep school for engineers in in Boston, Copley Square, which is a big mistake on their part because the Boston Jazz Club stable was right across the street. And... Uh, I was kind of out of place there because everybody had suits and ties and stuff, and I was like into my, you know, I'm dressing very loosely. So I'd go over to the stables to have my lunch, and I'd never come back. And I heard a lot of great guys, Serge Shalloff and Dickie Twardwick and Herb Pomeroy and all those cats. And uh, that that was the uh, beginning of the end. <laughs> <laughs> so, so... What was the first live jazz show you ever saw that really blew you away? Uh, at the stable. Well, that's not true. No, that's not true. Um, my buddy, my good buddy and I, uh, Bob, uh, was a tennis player. Uh, we drove into town once. He had a license on a car. I didn't. I think we I was probably about 16. And... Uh, um, uh, we went to the stables first, and, and you couldn't get, they wouldn't let us in, but you could stand by the door and hear the music. And I wasn't really listening to it, and I'd heard it before. And then there was a new club that opened up down the street on Huntington Avenue, so we walked down and uh, opened the doors, and, and the place was, uh, I was young and naive and didn't know anything, and the place was all full of uh, black people and uh, a lot of smoke and a lot of drinking going on, a lot of happiness happening, and there was this sound coming off the bandstand. It just pushed me back out the door. It wasn't until many years later, maybe a few years ago, that I found out that was Miles's first quintet with Coltrane wow. and Philly Joe. Yeah, yeah, and. Uh, I have uh, a poster of it. I have this guy, a good hyster Boston historian, he found the poster for the gig. So I was actually able to date it. So, so that was it. Uh, that, that was, uh, I think, the Quintet's first gig, and that's where Miles uh, hooked up with Ahmad Jamal because Ahmad was playing in Soul Town at the same time. I never got to hear him. I didn't even know about him until later, but I think that was my first no, even before that, George Shearing is the first live performance I heard. I had a date and wow. I took it. Yeah. Yep. And uh, I had front row seat. Unfortunately, he, he found it on the bandstand. Wow, that's quite a collection. 
man. Made it very difficult to enjoy the, the experience. He was, I understand he was known for that. Um, uh, but that was my first live. And actually, uh, uh, that's what got me started in the music. My brother was a waiter in Massachusetts, and he purloined a Josh Green album without the cover and brought it back to me. And it was, uh, I'll change it with the times. And, uh, that was, uh, that was the album that did it. I said, Mo, this is what I want. This is when I realized that I wanted to be a president. Must have happened before my sophomore year. And, uh, and there was a tune on there called Changing with the Times that was in different time signatures, but I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know enough about beats, times, and bars or anything. So many years later, in the late 80s, I'm with Phil Wizard's quintet and we're touring, making a, a, a festival, uh, a big festival tour with a bunch of people on it in Tokyo, and Shearing's duo was on the bill. So, um, I went up to George. I said, George, you know, um, your album, Changing with the Times, was the album that made me realize I wanted to play jazz. I said, there was a tune on there called Changing with the Times that I couldn't figure out. I said, can you, can you show it to me? And he says, uh, give me a couple of days and I'll, and I'll get back to you. So we, every, every night going to a different town, a concert hall in a different town. And, uh, I get a message that, uh, George is calling me to see him at the sound check. So I go over to, to uh, Phil's wife and borrow her cassette player, and George shows me this. And I thought it was an E flat, but I guess my record player was a little slow, and it was in the key of E, of all keys. Um, and he played it for me, showed me how to voice the voicings, and then played a couple of dynamite choruses on it in the key of E. And when he was done, he he uh, he jumped up out of his chair and looked at me and said, "Any questions?" <laughs> so the circle was closed, and I have a copy of that cassette of him showing me that. And my girlfriend Lillian found a pristine copy of that album about three months ago at an auction, and I have it framed up on my wall now, changing with the time. Wow, that's wonderful, man. Yeah, yeah. So. So when you started out really becoming a professional, were you nervous on stage or was it like a natural extension of who you are? Well, that's a good question. I can't ever remember being nervous on stage, but I'm sure I must have because I uh, I, I rechanneled that into competitiveness. Um, whenever I felt nervous, I figured I'd take advantage of the energy and turn it around um, plus, I I, uh, I knew how to beat fright, stage fright. I'd come up my own with my own system for it, which got published in a bunch of different places, Downbeat and Berkeley College Magazine and stuff. Um, so I I don't remember being. I probably was, but I don't remember being it. You know, most of the time I just I just feel uh, um, challenged. You know, instead of nervous. What did you learn over all of those years as a musician that helped you as a teacher? Boy, that's a yeah. big question. You're 25 years or less? <laughs> I don't think so. That's, that's a big question. Uh, I, I guess applying my own experience, I've kind of always been good at analyzing. Uh, you know, we spend most, uh, most artists, no matter what they do, 
kind of out there doing, they spend most of the time in a subjective state, not objective, because we're the instrument, you know, where 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 all the training resides and everything. I don't know. That's a, that's a that's a hard question to, to answer. Oh, I, I got very good at analyzing my feelings and what was going on because I remember when I was going to Berkeley, walking down the street, asking myself the question, what's supposed to be going on inside of me when I'm playing? So I think that question uh, has never stopped. And since then, I have, you know, I wrote the book Forward Motion and stuff like that. I discovered uh, and I'm very interested in the science behind music. So I think that question is probably the, the one that was the most important in my career, in my teaching. So I can tell other people what's supposed to be going on inside of them when they're playing. What What's the most pleasurable thing about being a musician, about performing live? Fun. If you're not having fun, no sense in doing it. And actually, that's, that's the, the way you beat stage fright because uh, what happens with st- one of the uh, the problems with stage fright that occur is over time you get separated from your initial motivation to play and my and everybody I asked says the same thing what was your initial motivation to play and they all said to have fun or to get girls one or the other or both if you're not having fun you can't play you're not playful you're not offhanded you, you can't touch your creative uh, parts of your brain and get them cranked up. Um, and it's, it's as simple as that. If you lose contact with, with your basic reason for playing, then it affects you. you, you you're disconnected. Or you're less secure. You don't feel quite as grounded. But as long as you, you're uh, having fun, you're, you're going to have a good time. You'll, you'll, you'll be surprised by your own playing and the audience will be surprised and you'll play stuff you never thought you knew, you know. And I, and I think that's that's probably the answer to most of the stage fright is you got to have fun. Yeah. That's it. So as a practitioner of jazz and a teacher of jazz, you clearly love it. So tell me, why do you love jazz? Well, seems like a good idea. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, uh, I don't think I could give you an answer on that. I don't know if that should be analyzed. As a matter of fact, I just uh, love it. Sometimes I hate it, but most of the time I love it. Yeah. 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 That's a tough, that's another question. Uh, very broad. Yeah, yeah I just no, I love to play. It's fun. I, I love to have fun. I love to play, and I, I enjoy uh, the communication uh, connection with the audience. You know, listen. we don't have a good time leaving the earth, you know, for a few minutes. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So everyone is going to get back to live music at some point. And I want to know from you, what do you hope both musician and the crowd gets from this absence of live, live jazz? Well, they're going to, everybody's practicing. So by the time this is over, the whole scene is going to be better. <laughs> I hope. Because every, everybody's practicing now. They got time to do it and they got no excuses not to. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. If, if everybody is practicing, then the whole level of the music scene should uh, improve. I would think. 
Yeah, I would too. I would too. What do you hope the audience gets, though? What do you hope they come back realizing after this? Um, you know, when this gets tough, music is usually the solace. Like during the Second World War, you know, in the First World War, those, those were the, uh, the times where music really blossomed. So uh, I think it may blossom again after this. Uh, and those two periods, previous periods, they blossomed while it was happening, and that's not possible now, of course. But I expect uh, people will realize how 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 important psychologically and emotionally music, the transcendental experience of music and art, offer you. You know, relief. You know, I think it's going to be better. Yeah, I agree. But I'm, so, the, I'm the I'm the eternal optimist, though. Yeah, well, that's good. That's this is the time to be an eternal optimist. So let me ask you this: What did you learn over the years being around legends and luminaries? Did they teach you about not only jazz but living? Don't don't try to live like them. <laughs> <laughs> Can you? I'm, I'm, these are uh, what did I learn musically? You mean or personally about life? What? Well, yeah, I guess, you know, there's things that you're going to pick out as a musician, and there's also going to be lessons that you're going to learn that are going to reverberate throughout all of your life. I learned mostly what not to do. The, my, my mentors were, uh, were uh, from the earlier scenes where there was a lot of drugs and a lot of alcohol and a lot of misbehaving, and there still is that, um, but... Um, not to the degree that it used to be. It was uh, very destructive. The musicians, uh, I mean, all, most of them died from overdoses or cirrhosis of the liver. Um, and I used to drink when I was young, but I stopped because it was hurting my playing. So I, I learned my lessons from 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 them. Uh, that, at least in terms of, of life, you know, take care of yourself and and realize that you're 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 here for one purpose and one purpose only and that's to play the music and get better and that's it and keep keep to a straight and narrow path so it i guess it gave me discipline right on. If I had, yeah if i had to find one word it would be discipline so i'm going to save the, the toughest one for last and i want to know this everyone has a version of who they think you are or a perception your family your friends your students your fans but you're the one living your life. Who do you think you are? I'm Hal Galper. I'm not what I do. I am who I am. Uh, you know, I moved up here to the Casco Mountains about 40 years ago. And up till the point where I just got this trio gig, nobody knew who I was. And I never talked about my career to anybody. Uh, because... Uh, as soon as you mention jazz musician, this uh, set of attitudes automatically comes into play, and they look at you differently. They re they romanticize you, and I have no romantic inclinations to, to this business whatsoever. Uh, as soon as you start taking a that's for the somebody else, you know, the, to be romantic about it. But uh, I think uh, I find that quite separating from people. As soon as that that template that, oh, you're a jazz musician template starts to happen, I feel less connected to them. So uh, mainly they, I, I'm, I just, you know, I'm just me. I'm not Hal Galvin, the jazz musician. That's my job, you know, and I'm not my job.
So I suppose that's the best way I can answer that. I like it. I like it. I I, I saw the lesson. Again, like I said earlier, there were lessons about what not to do. If you're, like, when I was with Cannonball, uh, this was like, you know, in the, towards, towards the end of his career, um, he was, he was falling apart. You know, he was not well and he was falling apart. And, uh, we were, um, packing up. We had just played this mafia club in Toronto and we're packing up. And the club was semi-dark, and uh, they had uh, Jazz at the Plaza album, Miles' Jazz at the Plaza, and Cannon was on. And, and I, I, the picture is burned indelibly in my brain. Brain Cannon was sitting at this small round table with his alto on his knee, listening to how he used to play. And the look on his face was just stunning, because... Wow. His identity, he had been cannonball for so long, and his identity was based partially on his play. Don't get me wrong, he was a great guy, he was a smart guy, generous guy, and all that. But, you know, during the Depression, all these guys uh, were, were jumping out of windows in Wall Street because they lost their job and because their identities were based on, on, on their job, which is very weak. And that's probably the first one of the most basic lessons I learned is uh, you're not your job, you know. I mean, what are you going to do if you don't have a job? You're going to not have any identity, you know. So I, I, I've seen that happen before it happened with uh, Tony Williams, you know. Uh, but he got past it. It was pretty amazing. He had no childhood. I know him. I used to play with him, his dad, and, and, and play with Tony when he couldn't reach the pedals, you know, 10 years old. Uh that's that's I think that's the biggest challenge is not depending on the music for your sense of security or your sense of self. You know, you are you are a person before you're a job, and I think that was probably one of the you know don't do this lessons <laughs> that that really stuck with me. Those are great stories, Hal. Thank you for taking some time out. A very surreal time on the planet. I appreciate you taking a minute out. Well, I appreciate you calling, and uh, uh, I miss Kansas City. I, when I went there and played with Bobby, it was just so much fun. Um, I have a picture of me standing up to Bird, uh, <laughs> uh, where the statue is on, on behind Vine Street. There. I have always wanted to talk to you, and I'm, I'm so glad I got a chance to. So, how? Thank you. I really appreciate it. Stay safe, stay cool, and and thanks for all the music, man. I've always been a big fan. Well, thank you very much. I really uh, appreciate you saying that. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest cats in Boston, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Hal for his time, music, and stories. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com. And for everything Neon Jazz all the time, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Jazz.